Good, good, good. Everyone's excited. It's big day. Sunday. Someone brought me an egg McMuffin this morning. He will remain nameless. Thus, I am grateful nonetheless. Good to see everybody here today. I don't know necessarily about you, but when I wake up in the morning, my vision is blurry. You know, you got a couple eye boogers, right, from the night. You guys know what eye boogers are, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? You got to kind of clean them up a little bit. Been a long night of sleep. Everything is blurry. My perspective is off. Depth perception is whack. Uh, just overall clarity. Nope, don't have it. And so what I do is I get up and I kind of scrounge around for my slippers because at the age of 40, you know, everybody needs slippers. Right, Doug? Right, because plantar fasciitis comes from just walking now, you know. So, so I get my slippers on and every once in a while I get the right foot in the right slipper, right? Because, you know, it's kind of dark and everything's a little blurry and so... Uh, I finally get them on after a couple tries on the right foot, and then I start walking, and then, of course, I I stub my toe on the hope chest, right, because it's six in the morning, and I can't see, and everything's blurry, and sometimes, if I'm having a really rough morning, I might even hit the wall on the way into the bathroom. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Yep, you do. You know the deal. See? You've been there, right? Vision's off. Things are unclear distorted, but then it hits me. There is a correction here, right? I didn't wear them my whole life, but about four or five years ago, uh, an eye doctor gave me contacts. And I don't know if you know that, but I wear contacts. And uh, immediately when I put in the contacts, uh, my vision's restored. I can see. Everything seems clear again. Right? Some of you wear glasses or contacts, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When I put my contacts in, I can see the world as it really is. But without them, especially early in the morning, uh, it's a little unclear, and I start stubbing my toes. Well, basically what we have going on here in this part of Romans, as we've been in Romans 9-11 through for quite some time, is that these Gentile Christians in Rome have lost a sense of clarity about who God is, and about what God is doing in salvation history, especially a lost clarity about what it means for Israel as a nation. Their perspective was limited. Uh, Their depth perception is whack. And Ethan did a little bit last week in just helping us see a little bit more clearly uh, about how Paul is trying to remedy that. Paul is literally trying to put some contact lenses on these Gentile Christians about to give them a vision of reality that is about who God is, God's nature, and what God is doing, His purposes in salvation. And so these Gentile Christians, because they had a limited perspective and they were uh, losing clarity in this regard, were walking around and stubbing their toes, stepping on other people's toes in pride, right? They were struggling with pride. They had assumed that God had abandoned Israel and chosen them. 
that they were the special people of God now at Israel's expense, and that God had no plan for them to include them in any way. So their vision needed corrected. And in some ways, the uh, verses that we're looking at this morning is a continuation of that. So their vision continues to get corrected, lest their pride continue and their pride grow. And so I wonder if there's anybody here this morning that uh, is a little bit unclear or ambiguous in their mind, or maybe just saying it differently, living without reference to the nature of God and His saving plans and purposes. Right? So many of us have uh, circumstances in our lives that are difficult or that are so pressing Uh, that are overwhelming, that seem chaotic, that were unexpected. Some of you know exactly this situation. I've had a number of conversations this week about the unexpected, the overwhelming, uh, crushing circumstances, something that you feel stuck in and maybe is is kind of affecting your view of reality. And, and, And sometimes, in the midst of these kind of situations, we can lose sight of God's nature. We can lose sight of the 30,000-foot view of life, of what God is doing, who He is, and how He is saving a people for Himself. And maybe today your vision needs corrected. Maybe your vision needs corrected by the nature of God. That in the midst of your circumstance, God's nature will speak today who He is. And how that transcends all that you're enduring in the moment. God's nature. And of course, His activity in the world. His his saving purposes and plans. We get so wrapped up in our own lives, in our own pressing situations, that we miss all that. And then we start stubbing our toes and stepping on others. So does your vision need corrected today? Do you have a distorted perspective on what God is doing in the world and who He is? It's my hope today that we can all gain perspective. Almost like a drone over redemptive history looking down, we can see the big picture of what God is doing. And in the midst of that, seeing His grand work in salvation, that we can be protected from pride given hope for people who are far from God, including unbelieving Israel. And that we can have assurance that when God makes a promise, He keeps it. And of course, we can be awestruck, amazed by the mercy of God to disobedient sinners. Grab your Bibles, Romans 11, 25-32. O God, correct our vision today. Show us reality. Listen to what Romans 11, did I say 10? Okay, Romans 11, verse 25 through 32. Listen to what Paul says. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. 
He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable or irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. This is the Word of God. And all God's people said, Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our God abides forever. Thanks be to God. I'm not sure if you're aware of this uh, necessarily, but we have uh, had over the last year and a half a, a leadership development community that meets here once a month to just raise up and invest in current and future leaders. This uh, leadership development community is called Equipped. Some of you may hear about these things. Well, it's simply a way for us to invest in, in new and in, uh, in, uh, current and future leaders uh, to, to build the church, to prepare the church for uh, leadership in the future and to invest and disciple uh, these wonderful guys have been meeting. So it's, it's been great. Well, this year we have been looking at theology, okay? And so uh, last month we had the opportunity to take a look at the doctrine of God together. And in thinking about the doctrine of God together, we divided his attributes, who he is, uh, we've divided his attributes into two different kinds. One is incommunicable. Say it with me. We can do it. Incommunicable. Simply put, it just means these are the attributes of God that he shares with us. Incommunicable. I'm sorry, I said it backwards. Does not share with us. Let's say it again so it's to not be confused. Amazed and confused. Hopefully you won't be. Okay? Ready? Incommunicable. He does not share those attributes with us. Now we back? Communicable attributes. Say it. Communicable attributes. He shares these attributes with us. So we've been looking at those attributes and dividing them into the incommunicable, those he does not share, the communicable, those he does share. And we got ourselves into a little bit of discussion about one particular attribute, his omniscience, his all-knowing nature. So the question is, does he share that attribute with us? Does he share his all-knowing nature? Is it incommunicable or is it communicable? Intuitively, I said it's incommunicable. He's not shared his all-knowing nature. And some of the other guys in the group are thinking the same thing. But you know, historically, it's been understood to be, and I learned a lot in this, in this uh, regard, uh, it's understood to be communicable. That God has shared his knowledge with us. Again, we're not, we're not omniscient. That's not what I'm saying. But he has shared his knowledge with us. And he's done so by way of revelation. He has shared his knowledge of reality with us 
in Revelation. And we know Revelation to be the Word of God Himself. Amen? So God has shared with us His knowledge, His understanding, His divine perspective. And that's a good thing. Because when God reveals Himself to us, it lets us in on reality. It shapes our perspective. A perspective that we would not have lest He open up the curtain and show us. And so He's done that in Revelation. He has shared His knowledge with us. And Paul says this in verse 25, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of the mystery. I don't want you to be unaware of what God is saying, of what God is doing, who He is and His purposes in salvation. This has been a mystery that was hidden, but now in the gospel, we see that it has been revealed. Right, This mystery. I don't want you to be unaware of the mystery. God is revealing that which was previously hidden. It's oftentimes that we think of a mystery as something that we, uh, or is difficult or is impossible to understand or explain. Right? Sometimes we think of mysteries and we relegate it to some mystery novel that we've read or like some show, and I'm dating myself. I remember my mother, old school, watching Murder, She Wrote. Right? Why are you laughing? Raise your hand if you've seen Murder, She Wrote. Okay. Holy, we're dating all of us cats up in here. Yeah. Yeah, Murder, She Wrote, or what is it? We don't even call Sherlock Holmes Sherlock Holmes anymore. What's the new show? Isn't it like Elementary? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, all you connect with... Murder, she wrote, over elementary. Okay, all right. Or maybe you've played the game Clue, right? Who done it? The mystery? Raise your hand if you played Clue. I love, yeah, see, you. come on, man. Yeah, this is good. So that's what we think of mystery, right? It's, it's difficult, and it's like this fact-finding, or like we're looking for clues, we're trying to unsolve this mystery, this puzzle, trying to put everything back together. It's almost like a game or something. We're, we're guessing. We're, 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 we're putting out ideas about what could be. But that's not what mystery means here in the book of Romans, or really anywhere. Really, the mystery highlights what has been revealed, something hidden that was otherwise incomprehensible that is now revealed. Okay, So it is known, it is made known through the preaching of of the gospel, through the teaching of God's word. And so now, God is revealing this. He's, un, he's removing the curtain. He's using Paul to reveal this mystery to these Roman Christians and to us. Here's what the mystery is. It says, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have been brought in. So we see, we've already talked before about this act of God to harden whom He will and have mercy on whom He will. That God is actively involved in the process of salvation and He is hardening some and He's showing mercy to others. And He's been talking for the last couple chapters about the unbelief of Israel and their exclusion while the Gentiles are coming to faith uh, uh, in, in, in mass number. But what he's saying here is there's a mystery of what God is doing in his nature. He's saying that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
And so the hardening of Israel is serving God's purposes, and the Gentiles are now being included in salvation. Yes, we've seen this. We've also heard about this jealousy that would come in the Jews. Right? They would see the mercy that, that the Gentiles were now experiencing, and that would cause them to be jealous, and that God would start to engraft them back in to the olive tree. Again, it's God's nature. It's his power to do this that Ethan talked about last week. He has the power to graft them back in. That's what God is doing. And so for, for the Gentile, the Roman uh, Christians there, there was no room for pride. There was no room for them to look at, the, 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 uh, to look at Israel and say, uh, we're the new chosen people. God has abandoned Israel. There was no room for that kind of pride. That they must understand what God is doing and His nature and His promises that, that God is not done with Israel. We must not miss that. He's still at work. He still is at work. And so when God reveals to us His grand purposes, when we see who He is and what He is doing, we are protected from pride. We've been talking a lot in our family about how it's easy for us to, to take a look at the piece of the pie, meaning our life, and act like that is the whole pie. Right? That we, it's so easy for us to focus on our piece of the pie and act like this is the whole thing. Like we just get so self focused and, and, and so consumed with who we are and our own reality that, that the piece becomes the whole pie. But what God, God sees the whole thing. And here he is sharing perspective with us and he's saying to us, that yeah, when you see the whole picture, you realize you're just a, a piece of the pie. You're not the whole thing. And when, that, when God expands our vision and expands our understanding, it leads us to humility. And so when we see who God is and what He's doing, we are protected from pride. We gain God's perspective on what He's doing. But not only this, this perspective gives us hope for those who are far from God. Namely, Israel gives us hope. The text goes on to say, And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The point I want you to see here this morning is that we can have hope for Israel. We can have hope for Israel. God has not uh, abandoned His people. He's not unjust. He has not abandoned His people. We can have hope for Israel. It says that. In this way, all Israel will be saved. And in this moment, we tap our toes into, the, into the, 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 uh, the rapids of controversy. What does this mean? What does it mean that all Israel will be saved? Does this mean every Jew throughout all time will be saved? These are the questions that people write papers and books and commentaries about. What is meant by this all Israel will be saved? And what does it mean by in this way all Israel 
will be saved. The controversy here is quite intense, actually. And there's lots to consider. But I think the thing that I want you to see the most is that we cannot in any way, shape, or form assume that God has given up on Israel or turned his back on them and that there is no hope at all for them as a nation. Right? I love what Cornelius Venomous said as he kind of summarizes his view of what's going on here. All Israel will be saved. He says this, and the quote's up there if you want to read it. This does not mean that every individual member of the people of Israel will ultimately be saved. It cannot mean that. It does not mean that um, every individual member of the people of Israel will ultimately be saved. Or that all members of this people will be converted at some future time. He says, the fullness of Israel need not mean the salvation of every member of this people any more than the fullness of the Gentiles means the salvation of every Gentile. Do you see that? It's very important. However, it does suggest that the Apostle Paul taught that the time will come in which a fullness of Israel will be converted. Say amen. There will be a time where a fullness of Israel will be converted. And in grafting again of Israel, back to the thing that Ethan talked about last week, as a people, a restoration of this special people of God to enlarge gospel favor and blessing. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then there will be a enlarge gospel favor and blessing from God to Israel. A fullness of Israel in the future that will be converted. And so we can have hope for Israel. Amen? That's right. And why? It's based on promises, verse 29. This way all of Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Another term for Israel, right? And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. These are Old Covenant, Old Testament promises for the people of Israel, for Jacob, concerning their sins, their salvation. And so we, we look to understand that this, this hope that we have for Israel is based on promises that were given by a God who makes promises and a God who keeps promises. And so any hope for Israel is just like any hope for any of us. Promises. God will save a people to himself. He will have the, the, the Jews and the Gentiles, one new man, saved through Jesus Christ. The deliverer will come from Zion And oh, by the way, that deliverer came, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is that deliverer that fulfilled every one of those old covenant promises. And so for any salvation for Israel, it will come through Jesus Christ. There's no parallel track for Israel to be saved and included in the kingdom of God. There is one way, and that is Jesus Christ, and that applies to you. There's no parallel, supplementary track for salvation. It must come through the Deliverer, namely Jesus Christ, who died as a fulfillment of every one of God's promises so that you might be saved and so that your sins might be forgiven. 
Any hope that anyone has for salvation comes through the promise kept in Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you're wondering about your standing before God and the condemnation that comes with your sin, please turn to Christ, the Deliverer. You can turn nowhere else. You must be saved through the name that alone saves Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. And so the Deliverer comes from Zion. He takes away their sins. I think this has great application for us, even today, that we must not turn our back on anyone, especially Israel. We must not write them off as done and gone, but we must have an evangelistic vision for Israel, and that may be even offensive to some. That their salvation depends upon them hearing and responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like anybody else. But we must not stop any evangelistic passion or fervor toward the people of Israel. We must be on mission to present the gospel to every man, woman, and child that is Jewish. We must not stop praying for Israel's salvation to be included in the one people of God known as the church. However God's timing and way manifests itself, I mean, we're all just waiting to see in some ways. But we understand that we cannot lose hope. And so when we read these words and we think about who God is and His nature and all that He's doing in salvation, we have hope. Hope for people that are far from God who are living in disobedience and unbelief in the hardness of their hearts, that God in His perfect way and timing can draw them to Himself and graft them in to the people of God. So we're a people marked by humility and now a people marked by hope in the saving work of God. Amen? What an awesome thing. But not only this, we see... That when we see who God is and what He's doing, we are assured of His faithfulness to keep His promises. And to some degree, we've already mentioned that. But I want to dig a little bit deeper in this regard. Paul goes on to say, as regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He's saying that there are two ways to see Israel. He says, on the one hand, they are enemies for your sake. And as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Enemies of who? How are they enemies? To whom are they enemies? Enemies of God. As regards to the gospel, they're enemies of God. For your sake. Right, Their disobedience, their rejection led to them receiving mercy. But understand this, they're enemies of God. And I think we need to stop there and park for a moment and just realize that any of us who live in unbelief and disobedience in this regard, who do not obey the gospel, we live in a state of being at enmity with God. We are God's enemies. And again, that becomes offensive to us in 2018 where our view of God is simply a glorified Santa Claus that just gives us what we want, is there when we need Him. Not a holy and righteous 
and majestic and perfect and pure God over all of His creation. But that's who He is. And He cannot endure sin. He will not endure unbelief. And the fact of the matter is, without obeying the gospel, without hearing and responding with faith and repentance, that is the state that we're in. We are enemies of God. And I want you to feel the weight of that. Enemies of God. If we reject the gospel, we remain enemies of God. Not acceptable in our pluralistic society, but nonetheless the truth. And I do not mean to be harsh, I mean to be true, so as to awaken in you this need for salvation. This need for reconciliation. That in my sin and in my rebellion, in my rejection of Jesus Christ, I live at enmity with God, and I'm about to suffer His imminent wrath. Just imminent wrath. And that reconciliation is necessary through faith and repentance. Said that they are enemies of God. But on the other hand, as regards election, they're beloved, dearly loved by a God who made promises to their forefathers. And he goes on to say that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That God's promises cannot be revoked. God's promises cannot be denied. They cannot be stopped. They cannot be thwarted. Why? Because God is faithful to keep his word. When God says, I will, he does. Amen? When God says, I will, he does. You can bank on it. That God is faithful. Even when we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot disown Himself. He is by nature faithful. He's true. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Not even our sin or rebellion can stand in His way. God's purposes will not be thwarted. God's promises will not be undone. If God wills, He will. And I think that's very significant for us in a day and age where ch- uh, uh, change happens so fast. Right? That uh, there's a, a waffling back and forth, uh, there's, a, there's just a constant chaos. Uh, they call it evolutionary chaos change, I'm sorry, exponential change is taking place in society. We can't keep up with it. There's something new every day. Always changing. It's fast-paced. In the 70s, there was a man by the name of Alvin Toffler. You may know him. He was a futurist. He describes the effects of too much change in too short a period of time in his book, Future Shock. Raise your hand if you've read Future Shock or heard of it. Oh yeah, see? Look at you cats. Some of dating. We're still dating ourselves. Future Shock. Listen to what he says. He talks about shattering stress and disorientation. He predicted that people exposed to these rapid changes of modern life would suffer from shattering stress and disorientation. They would be, in his words, future-shocked. He maintained the need 
to constantly adapt to changing situations would lead to helplessness, despair, depression, uncertainty, insecurity, anxiety, and eventually burnout. He talked about this in the 70s. Hello. Hello. Despair, anxiety, technological advancement. Constantly changing, fun and exciting, but in the end, despairing, exhausted, anxious, depressed, confused, living lives without anything stable and concrete that does not move, that is sure and certain. But we see here that it is the nature of God that provides with this culture, nor any technological advancement could ever provide us something that we need, assurance, certainty, that when God says he's going to do something, he follows through on it, guaranteed, absolutely, no question about it. That it is the immutability of God, His unchanging nature, and His irrevocable promises that give us assurance in this uncertain life and culture. Wonderful. If you're feeling the weight of all of that insecurity and lack of assurance, run into the arms of God and His promises and His immutable nature. That's where we get assurance and certainty. It's the fruit of trusting in knowing the nature of God, in resting and believing in His Word. He is immutable. He is faithful. His Word and His calling, His election is irrevocable. It does not change. Life can get so crazy and chaotic. Circumstances and and interactions that we have can be so up and down and unpredictable and overwhelming. And this world would give us false assurances. More of the same. We'll just try harder. We'll be better. We'll give you a new app or tool to put in your hands, and that will bring relief. But we find certainty and assurance in the nature and purposes of God. There and there alone. So in the midst of your chaos, in your circumstances, turn to God. Trust in His nature. Hear His word and His promise that are unchanging, immutable, irrevocable and live in the peace and joy of that. When we see who God is and what He's doing, we're assured of His faithfulness to keep His promises. Amen? This is our God. Behold our God. Involved in salvation doing more than we would ever seek or think or imagine, providing hope for those who are far from Him, even Israel, now providing assurance for us in the midst of an uncertain world in which we live, ever-changing. Future-shocked people are a faithfulness-assured people in the church. Amen? What an awesome thing. And lastly, we come to the end here, verse 30 through 32. John Calvin calls this conclusion a remarkable one. And I think as we read it and think and consider these things, we'll feel the same, that it's remarkable. And we think about who God is and what He's doing, 
in the world and how he saves, we're, just, we're left amazed. We're left awestruck by who he is and what he's doing. Verse 30, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, speaking of these Roman Gentile Christians, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. Already talked about that. So they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. Remember the Gentiles were at one time disobedient. And now upon initial hearing of the gospel, the Jews are what? In a place of being what? Disobedient. And then he ends by saying, for God has consigned all to disobedience. All to disobedience. The word all is emphasized. For God has consigned all, Jew and Gentile, every man, woman, and child, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. A remarkable conclusion. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. In saying consigned all to disobedience, that all have been shut up and closed into a state of disobedience. There is no one out of that. All have been consigned and shut up and put in a place of disobedience. We should feel the weight of that here this morning. We've been consigned to disobedience. This is our state apart from God's work in our lives. We have all been consigned to disobedience. John Stott says, disobedience is likened to a dungeon. It's likened to a dungeon in which God has incarcerated all human beings so that they have no possibility of escape except as God's mercy releases them. All consigned to disobedience, all placed in a dungeon incarcerated, shut up, locked in, consigned to disobedience. Why? That they may have mercy on all. I think we heard Ethan's prayer of confession where he confessed that we think too little of our sin. We think too little of our state in disobedience. We think too little and think it trivial and we minimize our disobedience and our sin and our corruption. And so we wonder why there's no response to mercy or lack of gratitude or depth of understanding of, the, of who God is in His mercy or how God saves in his mercy? We wonder why there's a lack of response. We're just kind of bored with it. Yeah, I heard that before. We need to think deeply on our disobedience and understand our dire state. We need to contemplate the gravity of our sin and our wickedness before God. And that we are not... Uh, uh, excluded from the word all. God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. We simply need more reflection, I think, personally, 
in this regard. And so, God saves solely by mercy. All that are saved are saved solely by mercy. It's not works so that no one can boast. It's all on the basis of mercy. God's freely given, sovereignly given mercy to whom He wills. That's how God saves. All are disobedient. God saves all, Jew or Gentile, by mercy. Freely given mercy. What does that mean? Is it just He has an emotional disposition toward us where He feels bad? The answer is no. I'm trying to wrap this up quickly, but understand this. When we're talking about mercy biblically, mercy that we talk about and sing about, His mercy is more. Our sins, they are many. His mercy are more. What are we celebrating there? His emotional disposition that He says, it's okay, I know you screwed up, but I'm going to let it go this time. I'm going to shove it under the rug. We're not going to talk about it anymore. I'm not going to hold you accountable for your disobedience and your sin. What do we mean by mercy? Is it just an emotional disposition? Maybe he sheds a tear because he feels bad for you? You follow me? What is this mercy? It's not an emotion or a disposition. It is rather a, the keeping of a promise through a sacrificial action. Mercy is an action on our behalf. So he's consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. And it's having mercy, it's his action, his action in Christ Jesus, who came into the world, who lived a perfect life, who died a sufficient death to absorb all that we deserved. Some people said mercy is simply what? Not getting what you deserve? Or is it getting what you don't deserve? Remind me. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, right? We're going to parse out the difference between the two. And so Jesus takes on what we deserved, wrath in our disobedience. He absorbs it. He, as the scriptures talk about, propitiates it. He averts wrath by absorbing it. And so now God can freely give this action to us to be appropriated by us so that it radically transforms our standing before God. It takes us out of the dungeons of disobedience and puts us into covenant family and in a place of pardon and release. Mercy frees us from our disobedience. And that is nothing more, nothing less than the action of God in Jesus Christ on a cross. It is not a tear shed. It is an action, a sacrificial dying in our place. So if you're looking for salvation, you must look to the crucifixion. You must look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Or you will not understand what mercy really is. You will not understand at all who God is and what He is doing to save people. It is by mercy, and that mercy is Jesus Christ in His death. Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved 
Titus 3, one of my favorite passages in the scriptures. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. 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 By the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of mercy in Jesus that saves the disobedient. It shocks us. It seems scandalous. It reminds us of Romans chapter 4, where, where God justifies the ungodly. That makes no sense to us. God justifies the ungodly? The one who does not work? That doesn't make sense to us logically. But this is the nature of our God. He gives mercy to whom? The disobedient. And He pulls them and releases them out of that dungeon of disobedience. His mercy is sufficient. Amen? We are awed by it. It blows us away. It amazes us. It, it, it just transcends all of our human logic and understanding uh, uh, God and how, who He is and how He saves. And we're blown away that all are disobedient and yet all need mercy and have received mercy through Jesus Christ. This is an awesome reality. It doesn't mean that everybody's saved, though. Let's be clear. We're not universalists. Not all have received the saving mercy of our God. Again, he's talking about all as a whole, Jew and Gentile, those who have embraced Christ by faith, all. God has shown mercy to all. And we're amazed by it. So I pray that your vision this morning has been corrected. That you can see the nature of God. He's sovereign in salvation. He's acting in our world today. He's faithful. And He's merciful. And I pray that the Lord, by His Spirit, would quicken within us humility, hope, assurance, and amazement. And really, this is a segue to Jeremy's preaching of the last few verses next week. Oh, the depth, the wisdom, the knowledge of God. That all these uh, controversial truths that we've been walking through and some of the debates going on in missional communities, conversations and emails, man, it's easy to lose sight of the point of what Paul's been writing about. It is to lead us, as we consider the nature of our God and His saving purposes, is to lead us to one place, adoration, worship, not debate, worship. Amazement that God would come to me, you, in our state of disobedience and pour out his abundant mercy to set me, you, free. His nature did that. Who he is, according to what he promised. He continues to be at work in our world today. Amen? Five pages, 50 minutes. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. 
because you're worthy of our gratitude. You're worthy of our worship. We confess our distorted vision of you, our distorted and, and, and unclear picture of reality that we get so caught up in our nine to five, in our frustrations, in our circumstances that we forget and do not understand who you are and what you're doing in the world. And I pray, oh God, that this morning you would correct that, that you would draw us to Christ. Let us see his mercy for salvation, run to it, trust in it, and, and, and rejoice in your faithfulness to us. You're a good and faithful God. And together we praise you. And we ask that you would now just continue this celebration, this amazement, this adoration of all that you are as we sing and pray and receive from your table this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.